Welcome to Epitaph The Others, a special bonus series exclusively for our Patreon subscribers. In The Others, we will explore stories that fit with the season's theme, but that, for whatever reason, we couldn't quite get into the main series. In some episodes, The Others will add more detail to one of the stories that we covered in our main series. Some will tell the stories of investigations that we consider unresolved, where we couldn't quite find conclusive parallels between legend and real life. And some will tell the stories that we feel we were somehow able to debunk. This is a companion series to Epitaph, and a thank you to those of you who keep Epitaph going. I'm Jason, and this is Epitaph, The Others. Wilfred Barrett Drive, that runs along the central coast in New South Wales, Australia, is home to one of Australia's more famous vanishing hitchhikers. A pretty young girl is often reported to be walking near the road, and if you're going in her direction and happen to pull over, it's said that she'll climb into the back seat. As with our other stories this season, she may converse with you for a bit, but before long, when you look in the rearview mirror, you realize that you're talking to yourself, because she's no longer there. In Noraville, the locals aren't just familiar with the legend. If they haven't got a story of having picked up the girl themselves, most can point you toward someone who has. Those who've picked her up claim that she disappears just as they pass the Noraville Cemetery. Ken Saladin is one of those said to have picked up the girl in the early 1970s. He shared the story of his encounter with Joanne Feeney. Ken vividly recalled picking the girl up on Wilfred Barrett Drive, she said. He was talking to her and, after receiving no response, glanced in the back seat and she was gone. In 2000, Julie Baker and Kay Davison of Gorakan believed that they also saw the girl. At about 7.30 p.m. as they were traveling south along Wilford Barrett Drive, they saw a strange girl in a white dress opposite the Noraville Cemetery. Ms. Baker described their encounter to the Daily Telegraph. We both noticed her beautiful dress, she said. It was a long white handkerchief dress, and we both commented on it. We had seen another girl hitching on Main Road at Tookley and thought it was dangerous, and when we saw a carload of fellows near the girl on Wilford Barrett Drive, we thought we should keep an eye on them. So we slowed down and were just about pulled over when she disappeared. There was nowhere for her to go. She just disappeared. Ms. Davison described herself as a skeptic. But since I saw this, she said, I'm not so sure anymore. I saw what I saw and I know what I saw that night. To be fair to Ms. Davison, though I'm willing to take them at their word that she and Mrs. Baker saw something, I'm a bit skeptical of this story too. According to the legend in the early 1970s, a teenage girl named Jenny Dixon was hitchhiking her way home to Noraville along Wilford Barrett Drive in the Wirrabalong National Park. On a long dark stretch of road flanked by the Tasman Sea to the east and Tugara Lake to the west, five young men in a car pulled over to offer her a ride. But she never made it home. The young men brutally assaulted her and took turns raping her before dumping her in the scrub near Jenny Dixon Beach. She was found sometime later on the sand, having been left for dead. The crime was sensationalized in newspapers, but police didn't have enough evidence to lead to an investigation and, as a result, the girl was never able to find peace. Within a few days of her burial, sightings of the girl's ghost were reported near the cemetery and reports steadily increased over the next weeks and months. And just because no one was ever charged in connection with her assault and death, that doesn't necessarily mean that the men responsible escaped justice. According to the legend, over the course of the next year, each of the five men met their own ends. The first hung himself after having complained to his accomplices of being haunted by the young woman they'd killed. Three others were said to have died in mysterious car accidents. 
After one of them crashed near where the assault had taken place, he supposedly said that he had swerved to avoid a girl who had appeared out of nowhere. Other witnesses at the scene hadn't seen the girl. Two others were said to have killed themselves by driving their cars off of cliffs. And the last of her assailants, fearful that she'd come for him too, left the area. But eventually he wrote a letter to his sister confessing what they had done and then took his own life with a self-inflicted gunshot. Though their deaths may have brought some level of justice, they apparently didn't bring her rest, as she still reported to be seen walking the Wilford Barrett Drive, trying to get home. If you visit the place where she was buried in the Noraville Cemetery, you'll be disappointed to find that her tombstone is no longer there. It was removed, some say, to prevent vandals fascinated with the legend from desecrating her resting place. Others suggest that it wasn't vandalism at all, but rather that, after each reported sighting, the girl's grave was discovered to have been disturbed. While I'm immediately suspicious that the idea of a ghost coming back to seek vengeance or justice which results in the deaths of her alleged attackers seems to read something like the plot of a 90s horror film, this story is actually based on some true events. At least the roots of it are. But before we get to that, let's clear away some of the things that aren't true. The first bit of untruth is that the girl was named Jenny Dixon. This is a misconception, I think, based on the story that she was found at Jenny Dixon Beach. Jenny Dixon Beach takes its name from a coal schooner, the Janet Dixon, which ran aground here during a storm on March 11th of 1870. The Janet Dixon had left Newcastle carrying over 100 tons of coal the previous Friday, and at noon on Saturday the weather suddenly changed and the ship's captain, Maxwell McKee, made for Cabbage Tree Bay. By 5.30pm, battered by high waves, the decks had been swept clean, and though the captain had ordered the crew to drop both of the ship's anchors, the waves still pushed it into the reef. The crew all made it safely to shore and waited out the storm. The next day they were rescued by another ship, the Fire King, but the Janet Dixon was lost. The second bit of untruth was that the girl was found having been attacked and near death at Jenny Dixon Beach in the 1970s, and that the story was sensationalized in local newspapers. That doesn't appear to have happened, at least not in the 1970s. And the most fantastical element of the story, the odd deaths of the men involved, also seems to be, as you could have probably guessed, fictionalized. Though plenty of cars have gone over cliffs in New South Wales over the years, none of the reports of those accidents actually match with the legend. But with those parts removed, we're left with a much simpler story. While walking along the road on Nora Head, a young woman was brutally attacked, assaulted, and left for dead. She was found having been dumped in scrub near the beach. Though police had suspects, no one was ever convicted of her attack or her murder. She was buried in Noraville Cemetery, which is located on Wilford Barrett Drive, and near which her ghost is commonly said to be encountered. And if you visit the cemetery to find her grave, it's no longer marked. Sadly, this condensed version of the story is entirely true. On February 14th of 1950, Clarence and Eleanor Holmes, their sons Ian and Frank, and their daughters Grace and Kathleen boarded a ship the Cameronia, in Glasgow, Scotland, bound for a new life in Sydney, Australia. After several weeks on the boat, the Holmes family eventually settled into a house on Pierce Avenue in Tookley, on the central coast. Not much description is given of the Holmes boys, but the girls were described as beautiful and popular with their neighbors. Grace, the elder of the two, was described as a redhead, and Kathleen had long dark hair that she wore in a braid that reached clear down past her waist. On a Tuesday afternoon, Grace told their mother that she was going to take Kathleen for a walk out to the Norahead Lighthouse. Three brothers, 
Raymond, Bruce, and Alan Massey were rabbit hunting on the eastern shore of Tuggera Lake when they encountered the girls. The Massey brothers helped them cross a plank bridge over a creek, and then they continued to go north as the girls went south. They said they also encountered a man, William Bertle, a short while later. Bertle, wearing a white singlet-style t-shirt and khaki shorts and walking barefoot, had been fishing in the area. He and the Massey brothers talked for about five minutes before they continued north and Bertle continued south, the same direction that Grace and Kathleen Holmes had gone. When the girls failed to return for dinner, their father asked neighbors and friends to help him look for them. By 9.30 that night, almost 50 people had joined the search, and they continued looking for the girls until nearly 2 o'clock in the morning without finding them. The search resumed the next morning at dawn. Two members of the search party discovered footprints that appeared to belong to two women and a man in the mud and sand near the shore of Tuggera Lake. They followed the tracks for nearly three miles, where they discovered what seemed to be a significant amount of blood at the site of a brutal struggle. Fifteen yards away, on the other side of a large log and covered in palm branches and bracken, the girls were laying side by side, face down in about seven inches of marsh water, thirty feet from the shore of Tuggera Lake, near what is today known as the Lily Pilly Loop Trail. The girls were attacked, and from the state of their clothing, it was believed that their attacker had sexually assaulted Kathleen. Grace appears to have fought back, but it wasn't enough to save them. When they were found, the girls had each been beaten with a heavy, blunt object to the point that they were nearly unrecognizable. Grace and Kathleen Holmes died on August 29, 1950. Grace Holmes was 18 years old. Kathleen was just 11. They were buried side by side in the Noraville Cemetery on Wolford Barrett Drive, just a few miles from their home in Tukley, on Saturday, September 2nd. Shops in the area were closed in tribute on the day of their burial. William Bertle, the 25-year-old fisherman that the Massey brothers had seen walking the same direction along the shore of Tuggera Lake on the day that Grace and Kathleen had gone missing, had participated in the search for the girls. He was arrested for the crime the same day that their bodies were discovered. Police said that the murder weapon had been a beer bottle, found broken at the scene. Shards of glass from that same bottle had been taken from the girls' bodies. Police took castings of bare footprints at the scene of the struggle that they claimed to match Bertle's. After being presented with footprint evidence, Bertle is said to have replied, You've got me now. I want a lawyer. I will not answer any more questions until I see a lawyer. And then, he refused to make any sort of written statement. Bertle's cellmate in the Maitland Jail, a man named Robert William Humphreys, claimed that Bertle was concerned that police had taken one of his shirts and asked, Is it possible to tell my own blood from someone else's? Humphreys told him that it was. At that point, he said Bertle confessed to having killed the girls, saying, I'm in a mess. I don't know what came over me. Humphreys would later testify that he asked Bertle, Did you do it, Bill? And Bertle replied, Yes, but they've got to find me guilty. I'm going to fight this to the end because I can't have people saying my family had a murderer in it. The prosecution suggested a sexual motive for the attack, as no attempt had been made to rob the girls and they were both found partially nude with their clothes having been torn and pulled up around their bodies. The girls seemed to have been the victims of a sexual maniac, the prosecutor said. They obviously met their deaths at the hands of a strong man in a frenzy wielding a weapon such as a bottle. However, based on the physical evidence, the girls had not been sexually assaulted and despite Bertle being positively placed at the scene and the claims of a confession, the key piece of evidence against him was still the footprint, and the witness called to testify about that said that while there were similarities, there were also enough differences to create doubt. On December 20th, after deliberating for just over an hour and 20 minutes, 
the jury returned a not guilty verdict in the murder of 11-year-old Kathleen Holmes. Shocked, the prosecutors immediately filed charges in the murder of Grace Holmes, but as no additional evidence was ever presented, the Minister of Justice recommended that the case not proceed and Bertel was released on February 14, 1951, exactly one year after the Holmes family had left England to begin a new life in Australia. In April of 1953, Clarence and Eleanor Holmes sent a letter to the police commissioner seeking to reopen the investigation. They suggested that the police had been so focused on convicting the man that they had arrested that they'd ignored other clues and failed to follow all of the leads. And then, when the case against Bertle was dismissed, the police had stopped investigating altogether. In an interview given to a local newspaper at the time, the Holmeses raised several possibilities of other suspects that may have even fed into the lore. For example, they wrote, there was the strange suicide of one of the witnesses who assaulted his wife and left her for dead and then hanged himself just before the trial. Did he know anything about our girl's murder? The murder of Grace and Kathleen Holmes, described at the time as one of the most gruesome in the history of New South Wales, was never solved. And while that may be the reason that Grace Holmes continues to return to Wilford Barrett Drive, I don't think that the killer was done after their murders. On September 12th of 1953, nearly 700 miles to the southwest of Tukley and Noraville, at Mount Martha, one of Australia's most famous unsolved murders took place. When 14-year-old Shirley Mae Hughes, better known as Shirley Collins, had left her home that night, she told her mother that she was going to a co-worker's birthday party. She'd arranged to take a train to Richmond, where she was to meet a boy that she worked with who'd drive her to the party, but she never arrived. Having possibly boarded the wrong train, witnesses say that they saw a girl matching her description at the North Richmond station around 8 p.m. She had walked away from the station as if she were looking for someone and unsure of where she was. At about 8.15 p.m., that same girl started back toward the station. A car approached her slowly and honked to get her attention. She stopped and spoke to the man in the car, and then he got out of the car for a moment. Witnesses who saw him described him as being about 40 to 45 years old, with a fair complexion and a long-featured face. That was the last time that anyone would see Shirley Collins alive. She was found several days later, on September 15th. She'd been brutally attacked by an unknown assailant and her body was dumped near a lonely spot off of Marine Drive near Mount Martha. Shirley Collins died on the night of September 15, 1953. She was buried at Preston Cemetery on September 18th. Her funeral was attended by hundreds of people, most of whom only knew her from the headlines about her death. At the inquest into her case, the government pathologist testified that the girl had been beaten to death with beer bottles before the killer had continued the attack with concrete blocks found nearby and didn't stop until he had shattered every bone in her face and skull. Additionally, Shirley was found semi-nude. Her skirt was pulled up over her head and except for the skirt, her slip, and part of her bra, the rest of her clothing had all been torn from her body. Some of it hung from trees as though it had been left out to dry. Despite this suggesting a sexual motive for the attack, as with Grace and Kathleen Holmes, Shirley Collins had not been sexually assaulted. Shirley Collins' murder became the most publicized and most baffling crime in Victoria. The police in that case interviewed and followed more than 3,000 leads, and though several men had given confessions to having committed the crime, no arrest was ever made. 
1954, 11 months after Shirley's death, a friend of her mother's had confessed to the crime. However, the details that he gave of the car that he'd driven, and of the place where the body had been found, didn't match with details about the car, nor with facts that police knew about the scene, so his confession was rejected. Then, several years ago in 2013, the Victoria Herald Sun ran an article claiming that a man who had died in 2005 had confessed to his caregiver that he had been responsible for the deaths, not only of Shirley Collins, but of two other girls, Beth Williams and Susan Oyston. His family claimed that these so-called confessions were simply the ramblings of an old man suffering from dementia and on medication for schizophrenia, but his caregiver, who'd taken notes about the stories, was sure that he was telling the truth. Media suggested that he may have even been a serial killer, but while I do believe that a serial killer may have been responsible for Shirley's death, I don't believe that the unnamed elderly man was this killer, if only because the names that he chose as his victims don't seem to show any pattern. Beth Williams was strangled, Shirley Collins was bludgeoned, and Susan Oyston, believed to have committed suicide, would have had to have been pushed off of a roof. I believe that, as his family has said, he was simply an old man with memory and mental health issues recounting details about crimes that he had heard years before. But in comparing the murder of Shirley Collins to the murders of Grace and Kathleen Holmes, I don't believe the serial killer suggestion can be easily dismissed. There's a similarity in the ages and the look of the victims of those crimes. All three of the girls were not only killed by being brutally struck in the head, but the primary weapon, a heavy beer bottle, was the same in both crimes. After their deaths, all of the girls were stripped partially naked, but despite this, none of them had been sexually assaulted. Given the similarities of these attacks, I can't help but wonder if Shirley Collins wasn't murdered by the same man who had killed Kathleen and Grace Holmes three years earlier, and then escaped without ever having been prosecuted. And I can't help but wonder if there aren't other similar cases out there waiting to be found. And perhaps, until the man responsible for her death is identified, Kathleen Holmes will keep returning to Wilfred Barrett Drive. I'm your host, Jason. Thanks for listening.